Last couple of weeks, we've been looking at some of the things that John the Baptist uh, proclaimed. On Sunday nights, we're looking a little closer at his life and some of the circumstances surrounding that. And on Sunday mornings, we've been looking at the things he said about Christ. We talked about how he proclaimed um, in the book of John. Um, I guess I'll just read that rather than butcher a quotation. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And we talked about what that meant and about how he was the forerunner of Christ, and he was not Christ himself, but he came to make the path straight, to make the way easy for Christ to come. And we talked about how he was preaching a gospel of repentance. We also talked about how he proclaimed who Jesus Christ was. And when Jesus Christ showed up as he was baptizing, he loudly proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And we spent last week looking at what that means and the imagery of a lamb all through Scripture from near the beginning to the very end. And that Christ was that perfect lamb who could make a sacrifice once and for all that would satisfy uh, the Lord. And we talked about how he takes on and takes away that burden of sin, as Brother John just uh, sung about, uh, this idea of who Christ is and what he did. Today I want to spend just a few minutes looking at the baptism of John, or baptism of Jesus by John. And to do that, instead of looking at the book of John, we're going to look at the book of Matthew. So turn to Matthew chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I'll just remind you that one of the interesting things about uh, John the Baptist is you really have to look across multiple books in the Old and New Testament to really fully understand uh, John the Baptist. There's not just one specific area that uh, we have an account of the things went on in his life. So even today, while we're talking about the baptism of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist, we may look, will look at several different books to do that. But to start, I want to read and set the stage in Matthew chapter three. Begin again. Um, well, we'll just begin with verse one and read the whole chapter. In those days came John the Baptist teaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, "Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Uh, and the same John had his remnant or his clothing of camel's hair, and a leather uh, girded about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him from Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about Jordan. And were baptized of him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say to you that God is able of these stones to raise up the children unto Abraham. And now the axe is laid unto the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Indeed, I baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. And he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, whose fan is in his hand and will thoroughly purge the floor and gather the wheat into the garner. They will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan, unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of you, and you come to me. And Jesus answered him and said, Suffer it to be now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. 
Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so I wanted to start, again, much of this we've already covered in the last few Sundays, but just to make sure we saw the whole context of how Matthew records uh, this event, I wanted to make sure and read all of that in here. But really, I want to focus on the baptism of Jesus Christ and talk about what that is and why that is important. And some of this, if you read uh, either in this King James Version, it may seem a little confusing. And even in a more modern translation, it's still a little confusing, perhaps some of what's going on here. So we want to take a look at some of these things and kind of parse them out a little bit. So going back to verse 13 in Matthew chapter 3, it says, that Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized on him, uh, by him, of him, sorry. So when I was studying this, it became kind of clear that um, this word then probably means that Jesus came forward to be baptized after everyone else. And so we see that John was surrounded and had lots of people we saw in the previous verses who were coming to be baptized, many of whom he turned away because they hadn't truly repented of their sins. They hadn't sought the forgiveness that that their faith can give them um, in Jesus Christ. And so if they didn't have uh, a good testimony, if they weren't truly turned from their wicked ways, and John would refuse to baptize them. And again, this goes back into the importance of baptism, but also goes to show you that baptism is not the thing that actually saves you. It is your repentance that does that. So John would turn people away. In fact, he was very harsh to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Those are the ruling elite, the religious elite of the day. And he said, why are you all coming along with this crowd to be baptized? Who who warned you? You're not truly repentant. You're not truly converted. And so very likely it took a long time for many of these people to, uh, to be baptized into the river. And then we see Jesus appears. And I think it very fitting, if in fact that is correct, that it indicates that he came after everyone else um, had already been baptized. We see this in a few other examples. We see that after his crucifixion and death, he was buried in a new tomb that had never been used. We see that when he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he rode on a donkey that had never been ridden on. And so we see this idea that Jesus Christ is slightly separated from the rest of us. And perhaps this is the case as it was here, that after John had finished baptizing everyone who was to be baptized that day, Jesus Christ steps forward and presents himself as well. Can you imagine what an honor that is? I mean, it's an honor for me, a mere man, to baptize another mere man or woman who has become a child of God. But I can't imagine the Son of God coming to me and saying, why don't you baptize me? Something else. It also confirms, at least later on, the things that John was saying. And so again, we see this. Now, at this point, Jesus had just presented himself. John had proclaimed who he was, but the people hadn't started listening to Jesus yet because he hadn't begun his ministry yet. This begins after this. But no doubt what happens later is people knew who John the Baptist were. We've talked about this already. There's all kinds of discussion about who he was and whether he's a great prophet. Everyone was listening to John. Even the religious leaders were coming forward to see him. And then he baptizes this man the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then later, no doubt, many people would begin to believe Jesus Christ because John 
was honored to baptize him. And so we see this acknowledgement between the two of what is going on. Now, in verse 14, it says that John forbade him or, or tried to stop him. You could translate that he vigorously protested. And again, I can only imagine if Jesus Christ was to approach me and say, well, baptize me, I'd say, not a chance. We see similar things with uh, Peter, who didn't want to be, um, have his feet washed by Christ, who protested and said, oh, no, no. And Christ said, no, this has to be done. This is the way that it works. And so you could read into this and think, well, this is some kind of argumentation. I don't think that's what it was. I think this is John the Baptist being incredibly humble, realizing who Jesus is and saying, oh, Lord, please, please, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus said, no, it needs to be this way. And so John gave in and permitted it and baptized him. Now, there's this interesting phrase here in King James. It says, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. Or another translation says, this is the fitting way to fulfill all righteousness. I want to make sure there's no confusion here. There was nothing that Jesus Christ repented of because he was without sin. And so understand everybody else who came, there's records repeatedly where John would require them to give a testimony of repentance Remember that fruits meet for repentance. That idea that they're going to explain how they have been changed and how they have changed their life. Jesus Christ did not do that because there was absolutely nothing to repent of. We've covered this in other scriptures. So I won't belabor the point today, but this does not indicate that Jesus Christ had to be baptized or that he received forgiveness from anything that day. But simply he was following after the pattern that God had foreordained for him to do and giving us an example of what we should be doing as well. So John was obedient and baptized Jesus. Now then we move on to verse 16, and we see that when Jesus was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Let's spend a few minutes looking at this. All four Gospels record the baptism of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist, and all of them, as is typical of the Gospels, are slightly different, but all of them are within harmony. They do not contradict each other. Mark indicates that he was out of the water when this occurred. And Luke just says, while he was praying. But what we see here is we get this idea that, again, Christ presents himself likely alone without everyone else um, there on the shore to be baptized. You go down into the river with John. They have this exchange. John agrees to be obedient to what Jesus Christ tells him to do. John baptizes him. And as Jesus is at the edge of the water or leaving or getting out or already out, he begins to pray. The most amazing thing happens that we see here. The heavens were opened unto him. Now, there's some interesting question here. And I won't come down real hard on one way or the other on this. The question is, did everyone else see this as well? As in the heavens opening and the spirit descending as a dove? Or was this just John's observation? Part of the way the text is written, it would make us think it was just John the Baptist who saw this. Let me read it again. You'll catch it. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. It's very unlikely the way it's written is talking about Jesus, that first hymn. So it could just be that 
that first two hymns is talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist saw the heavens open and saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove on Jesus Christ. But it could have been that others saw it too. And again, I don't know which way to take that. But either way, this is actually a very important sign, an important symbol for John the Baptist. And that's where I want to spend a majority of today talking about that and what this means. But before we get too much further, the heavens were opened. You ever wonder what that means? You ever been somewhere? I guess it has to be outside. And all of a sudden, it's like this bright sun just comes out from behind a cloud. The clouds part, and there's this beautiful bright, sometimes after a storm. I guess that could be kind of what it's like, but I don't know. I have no idea what it means that the heavens open. But what it does seem to indicate is there's something very special going on here. This is a different circumstance. This is something unusual. And this concept is mentioned actually a couple times in scriptures. And every time it seems to um, indicate that something uh, special is happening, something amazing is going on, something that we must really pay attention to. And so the heavens are opened up, whatever on earth that that possibly means. And the Spirit of God descends like a dove and lights upon him. Now, again, I want to make a couple of important distinctions here. The Spirit of God is not a dove. And that's clarified a little bit more um, in Luke's account. Luke 3.22 says, in the bodily shape of a dove, as a dove, like a dove. And so what we see here is the Spirit of God is somehow manifesting its presence in the visible form of a dove. There's a couple interesting verses. Actually, doves are talked about quite a bit in the Scripture. Uh, Song of Solomon 6, 9 says, My dove, my undefiled one. In Matthew 10, 16, which is Jesus Christ himself telling us to be as harmless as doves. And from this, we get the idea that doves are a symbol of purity and harmlessness. Purity is primarily, I think, the emphasis here that Jesus Christ was, in fact, without sin and was pure. And in this case, the Holy Spirit, in the form of looking like a dove, came and stayed with him. I think this is something very, very important for us to understand. This is not a fleeting or a passing moment. This is the Holy Spirit of God who is coming down and it is resting on him. You could say even anointing Jesus Christ, not staying for a time and then leaving, but staying, aboding, lighting, permanently there, uh, anointing Jesus Christ. This is very, very important. Let's go back and look at some of the Old Testament scripture that talks about this. Keep your marker there in Matthew. We'll return to Matthew in a little bit. But let's journey back to the book of Isaiah. Begin with chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 10, but the the emphasis is on verse 2. But again, I want you to see the importance of what is happening here and why John the Baptist later says that basically this was a confirmation of what is going on here. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning with verse 1 says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding and the fear of the Lord, and shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be girded of his loins, and faithfulness girded of his reins. And the wolf shall also dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, and their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. And the suckling child shall play in the hole of an asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockrice's den. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all thy holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. And in that day there shall be the root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and the rest shall be glorious. And in this we see a prophecy of Jesus Christ to come. And one of the main emphasis here is that the Spirit of God would rest upon Jesus Christ. And we see today, or in that scripture we read in Matthew, the fulfillment of that, that John the Baptist was looking for, that sign that the Spirit of God would rest upon Jesus Christ. Now just for emphasis, and I feel like we've covered this before, but it doesn't hurt to mention it again. Jesus Christ was both fully man and fully God. Not a 50-50. He was God and man. Now, this is very challenging for us to understand in many ways because we don't think in this way. But God can and does do anything that he desires to do and can make Jesus Christ fully God and fully man. And we do not understand the distinguishing mark between these two and sometimes really wonder, well, how much did Jesus know? How much did he know uh, ahead of time? We would think God has all knowledge, and He does. Does that mean that Jesus Christ knew what you were going to say before you were going to say it? Or was it revealed to Him? Did He have to live like us in the power of the Holy Spirit? It's very challenging. In other words, did Jesus Christ have to listen to what the Spirit of God told Him and then do according to what the Spirit told Him to do? I think the answer is yes. In fact, there are scriptures that talk about how Jesus Christ was looking unto God and did whatever the Father did, He did as well. And so we see this idea that Jesus Christ had to follow, had to have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, living on Him and in Him to guide Him in His daily activities. And so we see here, the Spirit of God shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding and the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. What does that mean? That when Jesus Christ would come into a situation, there's the woman at the well, or the one caught in adultery, or telling them to cast their nets on the other side, when it made no humanly sense to do that. He was obeying and listening to what the Holy Spirit told him to do. And he would be obedient because the Spirit of God rested on him in such a powerful way that he followed after him. And I'll just quickly add, again, I can't call the scripture because I hadn't planned on saying all this. 
The scripture seems to indicate, in fact, Jesus Christ himself said, you see all these wonderful things I've done? You can do greater. And we can only do greater when the Spirit of God is allowed to rest on us and overtake us, and we are obedient to what the Spirit of God wants us to do. And so the power that Jesus Christ had, he had because he was God, but because the Holy Spirit rested on him. And we too should seek after the Holy Spirit resting on us. Let me flip over a few to Isaiah chapter 42, a few pages ahead or after. Isaiah 42. Here again, I will read verse 1 through 9, but the emphasis will be on verse 1. Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit on him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, um, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till we have a judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait in his law. Thus saith God, God the Lord, He that createth the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth, who's come out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people, unto it, and spirit unto them that walk therein. I, the Lord, called thee in righteousness, and I will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for the light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise be graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before thy spring forth, I tell you of them. And so here we see another example of where Jesus Christ fulfills everything mentioned in the scripture of Isaiah. That he is the creator of the heavens and the earth, that he stretched them out, that he will come and that nothing will prevail against him, that he will not go around ranting and raving and crying, but he will simply speak the truth and that the spirit of God is resting upon him to bring forth judgment to whom? Well, to the whole world and to the Gentiles. And we see in here the importance of this idea that the Spirit would rest upon him. And we see that again confirmed through the dove that rests on him. I want to read one more example or discussion of this in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4, if you'll turn there for just a moment. Now, I want to take just a second and explain the context of this so you see the power behind this. Now, if you are to chronologically follow what is going on here, we see that Jesus Christ lived about 30 years and was not engaged in this, what we would call the ministry. He had not been revealed to the world as the Messiah. That revelation came the day that John the Baptist called out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then it seems as though the next day, John proclaims it again, and Jesus was baptized. If you follow after that, you see right after the baptism, we just read about uh, the heavens opening, the Spirit of God descending and resting on him. And then we see that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. 
and 40 nights by Satan. Jesus overcame that temptation, again through the power of God and through using scriptures against Satan. He comes out of the desert and into the passage we're going to read today. Luke chapter 4. I'm going to pick up. I'll start with verse 13 because it's the conclusion. Luke chapter 4, verse 13. And when the devil had ended all temptation, he departed from him for a season. As we pick up new paragraph, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And then in verse 16, we pick up the story. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogues on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there was delivered to him a book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened to him. And he began to say unto them, This day is a scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And I'll end there. So let me just make sure we're all on the same page. Jesus Christ is baptized, not for the forgiveness of sins, and not repenting of sins, but because it was the appropriate thing for him to do. Jesus, uh, the Lord God, gave his approval. Instantly after that, he was led into the wilderness for 40 days. After the devil was done tempting him, in all ways possible, for a time, the devil departed, and Jesus enters into Nazareth and continues about his daily life, which was to go to the temple. And the custom of that time was to give someone a portion of the scripture to stand up and to read. And when he does it, he opens to the most amazing passage possible that indicates and clarifies exactly what John the Baptist is testifying to. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and to recovering the sight of the blind and to set them at liberty that are bruised coming out of Isaiah, coming all the way forth from the prophecy. And Jesus Christ himself says, this is about me. Now, can you imagine if I got up here today and read that and said, hey, that's about me. I hope someone would very quickly stand up and say, you're wrong. But see, Jesus Christ could because the spirit of God had rested on him, had anointed him, and he was chosen of God as the Son of God to do these things. And it was ordained from the beginning, and in fact, even just before the beginning of time, that this would be how this would happen. And so we see these things take place in time to testify to who and what Jesus Christ is. And I hope you see the beauty in all of this. Returning back to Matthew... We'll pick up where we had left off. 
now that we see the significance behind what John the Baptist is recording, now that we understand that Jesus Christ is fulfilling so many of the scriptures, now that we see that the Spirit of God is resting on him, And then we see something else that happens. Matthew 3, verse 16. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And in verse 17, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now watch something very peculiar I want you to identify with. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That means He is equal to God. He is a part of God. Then we see the Holy Spirit descending out of heaven and resting upon Him as a dove. And then we see God Almighty, God the Father, speaking from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And brothers and sisters, we see all three aspects of the Godhead at once in harmony. And if anyone tries to tell you anything different, then go back to that passage. And there's others where all three are present and equally separate, yet all unified for the same purpose in the Scriptures. But brothers, understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is co-equal with God. The Holy Spirit is co-equal with God. And God the Father, the three are one God. And we worship them as one. We'll also notice here, again, I don't know Greek, but I do a little bit of studying. The way that this is written in verse 17 indicates an intense emotion. An intense emotion. We can see here and understand in the context of this that the Lord God, God the Father, looking down on His Son, is not just saying, hey, this is my boy and I'm happy about him. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Why is He pleased? Because He is obedient to the Father. Why is He pleased? Because He's doing what the Father wants Him to do. Because He knows what is going to come. And He knows the beginning from the end. And He knows that Jesus Christ will be obedient throughout His life. That He will have every opportunity to sin and yet will not do it. He knows that Jesus Christ, even though He didn't want to take the burden, will take my sin and your sin upon Himself. That He will carry it to the cross. That He will turn away from His Son. And that His Son will be crushed to death. That He will die and He will be resurrected. And he, knowing the beginning from the end, can look down and say, I am well pleased in my son. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And we see here such an important understanding of what's going on. And turn with me back to John, please. We'll come close to ending John chapter 3 today. John chapter 1, I'm sorry. The book of John contains a little bit more about John the Baptist. They're not the same person. Just make sure we're we're clear on that. John the Baptist did not write the book of John. Two different people, just in case there's any confusion there. But John, the gospel of John does record a little bit more about John the Baptist than the other gospels. 
I mentioned a few weeks ago, and I want to make sure I, I provide some clarification, and I preached a whole sermon on this a long time ago, so I'm going to uh, just go over it very quickly. John chapter 1, verse 31. This is John the Baptist speaking. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode on him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Whereupon you shall see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So let me unpack a couple of things here. I've mentioned before, I don't think John the Baptist understood who was going to be the Messiah until God revealed it to him. And I think that occurred when he looked up and God said, that's your man right there. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I think it was confirmed to John a few days later during and after the baptism when Jesus comes up out of the water and begins to exit and the heavens open and the Spirit of God rests and he hears the very voice of God saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so John the Baptist is trying to tell us this was not something we worked out before. I didn't know who was going to come. I had no idea who would be the Messiah. And I know we talked about a couple weeks ago about how John the Baptist and Jesus Christ were related uh, through their mother's lines. But they lived in two different cities. They didn't know each other. Probably didn't really grow up together. May have met a few times. We don't know. So I'm not trying to read too much into it. But it's not like, I think John's trying to make this clear. It's not like I've worked this out like a magician might have a confederate. Does that make sense? Somebody who really knows what's going on who comes up and plays the part to make you believe it. I think John is testifying, I didn't know who was going to come. I didn't know who was going to be the Messiah until God himself revealed it to us. And then he confirmed what he had told me before. And we know that the Spirit of God was within John from birth, which is a little bit unusual. And it appears as though God told John what to look for. i read this in a different translation. It says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen him and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. There was no doubt in John the Baptist's mind that Jesus Christ was not just another prophet, not just a good man, not just someone else needed redemption or saving, but the very Son of God. And it was confirmed by the signs that God personally told John to look for. And the signs that we read about in the Old Testament that were prophesying about the Savior to come. John then gave that evidence to us that we can believe in Jesus Christ. And we see here a beautiful nature of what we're dealing with. 
I said I wouldn't flip anymore. I apologize. You can turn there if you want. I'm going back to Matthew chapter 3. I told you, you got to do a lot of flipping to get the story. Matthew chapter 3. I want to read verse 11 and 12 because I think they play a critical role in this. John was telling the crowd who was there, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John is expressing, even before the baptism, so we're going back in time a little bit, a very important thing. He knew that someone was coming. Someone so great... He wasn't even worthy to take his shoes off, which was a huge indignity in that time. In fact, most slaves weren't even required to take someone else's shoes off. And so John is indicating that he is the lowest of the low, that he is coming to baptize with water after repentance. But he that coming after is mightier than he, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There's a couple of ways we can interpret this. Two that I think most likely. Could be that John is referring to a baptism of the Holy Spirit and a fire. That is sanctification. I'm sorry, that is salvation when you receive the Holy Spirit and the fire being at the same time the sanctification, the burning away that which is impure so that you can live a sanctified life. It also may be referring to two different things. One, that is those who are saved are baptized by the Holy Spirit. We are a part of God. We are cleansed by God. And those who are not will be punished for all eternity in fire. I don't know exactly which way. There's other interpretations of that as well. But here's where I want to end us today with our thought. We see John the Baptist being obedient baptizing, asking for repentance before he submits anyone to baptism, smoothing the way, lowering the hills, making sure the ways are straight for Jesus to come, having no idea when his work would be fulfilled, having no idea who is going to fulfill it, but knowing that when this person comes, he would see the Spirit of God rest permanently on them. And then one day, while fulfilling his obedient duty, baptizing and baptizing and baptizing, a man steps forward who God has ordained to be the Messiah, who comes to John, who has no need of being baptized, who has absolutely no need of repenting of anything because he is perfect. And John says, oh, please, not me. And Jesus says, no, it has to be this way. And John likely has the greatest honor of his life to baptize our Lord. And if that wasn't enough, when Jesus Christ exits the water, the heavens split open and a dove descends. The Holy Spirit rests on Jesus Christ. John sees this and hears the voice of God say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Wouldn't you just want to quit then? Now, the rest of the story is John didn't quit. We may talk about that tonight. Even though all the disciples begin to leave John and follow Jesus, even though all the crowds begin to leave John and follow Jesus, and John rightfully says, 
He must increase and I must decrease. John knew what his role was. And in this, we see the most powerful thing. But we also see the reality of life fully displayed before us and recorded here in Matthew. John says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. See, brothers and sisters, if, you know, if you've not been baptized by the Holy Spirit, you just got wet behind me. It doesn't save you. It can't fix what's inside of you. Water is powerless to change you. Your family history and who you're related to is powerless to change you. The decisions that you may make in your life or choices or trying to be a good person is absolutely powerless to save you. The only thing that changes you from who you are into who you should be that restores a relationship that's broken between you and God to one of unification where you and God can now communicate with each other is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is the saving grace of God. There is nothing else you can put your faith into, nothing else that will save you or get you to be reunited with God other than Jesus Christ and His grace and believing and being converted and having the Holy Spirit come into your life. Because what we know from countless scriptures is that once you are saved, the Holy Spirit comes to you as well. That means you are saved And you have access to the co-equal part of the Godhead who you can pray and talk with, who will comfort you, as the scripture says, who will guide you into all righteousness to help you know what you are to do. And again, depending on how you want to translate verse 11, it could be that the Holy Spirit comes into you and then sanctifies you to do the right thing. But it also could be, and is appropriate to say, that those who have not been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, those who have not received the Holy Spirit at salvation, will absolutely be punished for their sin. And that's the part that no one likes to talk about. No one likes to talk about that. But it's true. and doesn't change anything, whether we ignore it, whether we talk about it, whether we emphasize it too much or too little. It doesn't change the fact that you are either a child of God or you are the enemy of God. John the Baptist knew it. John the Baptist preached it. And John the Baptist pointed to the one who fulfilled it. And I want to close and read verse Isaiah 42 again. Nope, Isaiah 11. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch out of the grow out of his roots. We've talked about this before. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel, of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of a quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be girded of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. 
Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, the one who the Spirit rested on, is the one we were waiting for to come. He is the only one who could come. He is the Lamb of God. He is the pure sacrifice that we need to find salvation. And if you've never been saved, if you've never come to that saving knowledge of the Lord, then you are doomed. I mentioned this morning to the younger folks the breath, the breath of God. Let me just pause and emphasize something here that relates to this. We all last for eternity. We all last for eternity. Our spirit, our soul will go on forever. And you will either go on forever whenever you leave this physical life in the presence of God. Or you will go on forever in the complete absence of God, which is as dark as dark can be and as burning hot as possible. And you will live the rest of eternity in one of those two places. We live forever. And where you put your faith today, if the Lord's dealing with you, will determine where you spend eternity. John the Baptist knew that. That's why he preached repentance. That's why he pointed to the Lamb of God that can take away your sin and move you from eternity separated from God to an eternity with God. And thousands of years later, the gospel is no different. Nothing has changed. Jesus Christ has died, conquered death, and risen and seated at the right hand of God today, making the way of salvation open to you. And so, where will you spend eternity? Because you're going to spend it somewhere.